Welcome to the Holistic Wealth Podcast. I'm your host, Keisha Blair, wife, mother of three, author of Holistic Wealth, and founder of the Institute on Holistic Wealth. The show will showcase various experts in the key pillars of holistic wealth. Each week, we deliver the best information on how to become holistically wealthy and live your best life. Today, we have a very, very special guest with us. It's Selena Caesar Chavan, and she's the new author of the new book, Can You Hear Me Now? It's a much anticipated book. She's also a successful entrepreneur and mother of three. Selena, welcome to the show. We're so happy to have you. Hi, Keisha. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. So I want to start the interview going way back with your roots and your immigrant experience, because we have that in common together, among many other things. But how has that shaped you coming from a long line of strong Black women who had strong voices and who charted their own path in the world? Because I know for Caribbean women, you know, especially our ancestors, these are strong, very powerful influences on our lives. Can you tell us how that shaped your experience? Yeah, for sure. So in the book, I really talk a lot about the women in my life who have influenced it. And I did that intentionally, I think, because we often diminish or dismiss the stories of women and the power that women have to not only shape their current circumstance, but to shape their future circumstance as well. And I think I've had a few women in my life that have allowed that to happen. You know, the book is dedicated to my mother and, you know, it says iron sharpens iron. So oh. there is that strong degree of discipline of making sure that our daughters are twice as good, work twice as hard because we want to see them succeed and, and do well. I also reference both of my grandmothers, the maternal and the paternal ones that I really drew a lot of strength from. And then my name comes from my great-grandmother, Selena, who uh, I changed my name to Selena in 2013. So you would say that, you know, a lot of these women in my life have had a huge impact on the fact that I'm here, but the fact in particular that I immigrated to Canada. And even though it's a place that is literally cold (laughs) right now, um, it's often hostile to immigrants because they have to navigate such different systems their influence, influence of those women have made it such that I could have, you know, some success here. Yes, no, for sure. And you touch on a very important point, and that is the immigrant experience that I really wanted to get into early in the interview. Mm-hmm. Because in the book, you so eloquently put it and, you know, you, you, you set it in this really good context of the winter and the cold and the gray. Yes. Right. <laughs> and that that feeling of not belonging, which just eats away at immigrants from day one to forever, it seems, right? Mm -hmm. It feels like it's just never ending that seeking for that belonging that just probably never materializes. Can you tell us about your experience with that in your career, in your experience here in the capital? Yeah, so I, I talked right at the beginning about there being this gray sense of not belonging, arriving, of course, from Grenada to Toronto, you know, into an apartment building. I'd left Grenada where I I basically live with my paternal grandmother 
and my aunt and my grandfather for the first two years of my life. And I get to this country and it's like, <laughs> this is not tropical. This is not, no. this is not warm. This is not, you know, this is not what I was imagining this, this big, you know, foreign country to be like. And I call it a gray sense of unbelonging. And I, I liken it to the time where I walked through Parliament for the first time and really had that same feeling of, man, this place is inhospitable. It had, you know, there's no real signs that Black individuals ever contributed or built the economic, social fabric of this country because there's no representation of us in those buildings. Right. And that was, that was really difficult to to imagine you know like coming to a foreign country you could say okay well there's no representation of of grenada in these buildings but going into parliament and not seeing any representation of black people mm -hmm. you know, not even in the building but on the parliamentary precinct is unsettling and it gives you that sense of not belonging even before you sit in your seat absolutely absolutely and of course even before we get further down the line of the Black female experience in the workplaces, you know, in Canada. I'm just thinking about your book, and I'm an author too, and I can't imagine the process for you of having to bear all and be vulnerable through the book. What was that process like? Um, I, I actually had a really important figure that helped me with the book, and mm -hmm. that was my editor, Anne Collins who is with Random House Canada. She's the vice president. She really helped me formulate the book that it was an exercise in mm -hmm. healing, an exercise in ensuring that even though the, the book has my pains and my struggles and my mistakes, that people could get a sense from the book that it wasn't just about doom and gloom. Clearly, I've had a lot of success in my life. But I didn't think the story was going to be as impactful and revolutionary in terms of how we write memoirs if it just had all of the good stuff mm -hmm, in it, mm -hmm, right? Absolutely. People could Google the good stuff. People could Google it and find out about all the, you know, the things that I've done. But really, I think what people see in this Instagram filtered world is, you know, oh my God, look at Selena. She has the parliamentary secretary. She has, you know, the fashion and the car and the house and the, all this, the, you know, the, the right. family, but they don't see all the other stuff. Yes. And I really wanted the book to be about the other stuff, how I got to those places, the blood, sweat, and tears that are involved in achieving success, however you define success, but also so that people could walk along that journey with me and they could have that book with them on their journey. So if they make mistakes or if they're feeling alone, they can look at the pages and say, oh, Selena made a mm -hmm. mistake too. And Absolutely. it's going to be okay. And, and in the book, you mentioned that when you decided to walk away from politics, that so many people were disappointed because we had finally gotten a voice at the table. And some people felt that you had walked away and you were that voice at the table. But you also mentioned in another section that you had also endured your fair share and that you had put up with the trauma and the assault and things like that and you had stuck it out for a while so I'm wondering if you can tell us at what point you reached that breaking point and at what point did you decide that maybe it was time to walk away yeah you know what I think our, our community really needs to reevaluate how we look at 
being at the table because uh-huh. we've had a lot of people at the table a lot of people sit at tables but they don't do what is required to disrupt enough that our communities get the benefits of them being there so being at the table is not enough yes and being at the table or assuming that we're at the so number one being at the table is not enough but number two assuming that we are actually at the table is sort of a misguided approach because yes. you know we know we know that someone's in the room right. we don't necessarily know if they're at the table yeah. when they close the door right yeah so they could be at the table they could be sitting close to the host which is very respectful they could be sitting way down at the other end of the table where nobody notices them they could be sitting on the periphery of the room they could be the server you know in the room or they could be actually on the menu or on the plate, right? right? So we don't know where they are in that room. And I think we really need to have a good look at ourselves when we talk about, oh, you're representing us and you're there. And so that should be it. That is not it. If the person that is one, if the person that's there is, is supposed to be representing us and is not disruptive, is not sitting at that table, no matter where they are in that context, in that room and being disruptive, they're not going to create the equity that we need in our community. Number two, mm-hmm. if that individual is in that room and understands how the table is made, what the table looks like, who is at the table and where they sit, when they leave that room, they still have power to disrupt. You don't actually have to be in the room once you know what it looks like to be able to have an influence over it. That's a that's a misnomer. Mm-hmm. I, I could still have as much influence and disruption on the outside of politics as I do on the inside, because at some point I had the courage to go and sit at that table. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Yes. No, absolutely. Now that I know how it's made, that's when you could really decide to how to be strategically disruptive. Mm-hmm. Now, sitting at the table just for the sake of sitting there when love is no longer being served, what is what is the purpose of that when you're actually on the menu? I, I'm not interested in, in, in that, you know, in that mm-hmm. kind of way. So um, when I decided to leave, whether I was leaving as parliamentary secretary, resigning as parliamentary secretary for international development, or leaving politics on, on it altogether, I would tell you that love was no longer being served at that table because never once did, did the prime minister or my colleague say, oh, Selena, we would like you to stay. Thank you for doing a good job. Thank you for being part of our team. That was never mentioned. Mm-hmm. And so when I, I, I made the decision to leave at pretty much at the same time, I made the decision to resign as parliamentary secretary, which was in September of 20, 2018, because I knew that I was pushing against a system that was not going to move Uh and I needed to see equity in that system. And they just kept beating me down and beating me down. And that was not, I had no interest in banging my head against the wall for the next four years. Absolutely. And it's so amazing how you addressed being at the table in the beginning of that answer, because I've seen so many and even black career coaches, I've seen so many coaches tell black women, that the be all and end all is having that coveted seat at the table and they should fight to get that seat at the table because we need our voice there. Our voices need to be heard. We need to have decision-making influences and policy and things that affect the Black community. 
But then is that really the end? Is that really the destination? And you spoke somewhat to that, you know, in your answer a while ago, because I cringe sometimes when I hear these messages, especially given your experience and the experience of others. Selena, what would you say to that? And in terms of your experience and Black women who are all striving right now Mm -hmm. to be at the table? I'm not going to dismiss striving to be at the table because I think that that is important. But, and and one of the reasons why I wrote the book as candidly as I did is because I want people to not be surprised when they get there, that they may be surprised when they walk into that room and see the table and make an assumption that, yes, I'm going to be seating right next to the host. And they're actually not, they're on the periphery. So I want to make sure that people understand that there are going to be challenges while you while you are there. The second part to that is that you know, especially when we talk about, you know, you have to have a seat at the decision-making table or else nothing will happen. Well, that is the exact opposite of what our democracy actually means. Uh Democracy comes from the Greek words demos and kratos, meaning power of the people. The people have always had the power. Canadians always had the power. 1.2 million Black Canadians who live in this country, who can contribute to the economic, social, and creative fibers of this country have that power. When we exercise our right to vote as a small part of our democratic process, but it's not the end all be all, it is one small part. And we cannot assume that in exercising that right to vote, if we have one black person that is in this room, again, whether or not they're on the table is a different Mm -hmm. story, but in that room, that that one person is democracy, that that one person has all the capacity to influence decisions. You're totally misguided. The capacity to influence decisions comes from collective voices of the people. And we saw that during the Black Lives Matter movement. Mm -hmm. We're seeing, you know, the New York City Police Department defund to the tune of $10 billion. We've seen in the city of Toronto, when the city said that it wasn't collecting race-based data, and everybody, you know, uh, Quam McKenzie, the Wellesley Institute, different organizations advocated and said, yes, you must collect it. 9% of the population is Black. You need to understand the data. They started collecting it. The power has always been in the people. Once we decide that it belongs in the pocket of some man in some suit on Parliament Hill, mm-hmm. we've lost all of our power. Absolutely. And there are two things that come to me as you're speaking. One is the tokenism that Black people face in the workplace, which has caused a slew of issues within the community and even within ourselves to effect the types of change that we need to because then we feel stuck. Because in so many of our cultures, whether it's the Caribbean culture or otherwise, it's like, well, show me your title and I'll tell you who you are. Show me where you got to and I'll tell you who you are. You know, so how do we as a people, as a community, how do we deal with that? The fact that we have this token culture where it's one or two, you know, in one workplace or in one organization that will reach the top and everybody else just looks on, right? And then we're struggling too with an identity issue. And you mentioned in your book, Selena, towards the end, you said something so eloquent about leadership. You said that leadership is not a title. It's not that. We can't be leaders without the title. But that's something that we, we struggle with in the community. And it's something that I think we need to really, and you spoke to some of that when you said that it's the collective 
goal. It's the collective action. It's organizing, right? And so those two things jumped out at me. The tokenism, which I think is a huge problem because it's caused so many divisions and it's rendered us almost powerless in some form. And I wanted to get your view on that. And of course, the second part of that is that tackling that whole issue of leadership not being associated with a title. Right. So if I could speak to the token piece first, it's a numbers game. We live in a country, unfortunately, where, you know, there are 37 million people and 1.2 million of them are Black. So there really is going to be a lot of circumstances Mm -hmm. where we only have one in a senior position. It's just impossible for it to be otherwise, just because we're one of 37, right? So it really is numbers, right? And so I think what we need to do, and I spoke about it in the book, is to ensure that when we are one in a particular space, whether it's politics or otherwise, the recognition that we are not the only one experiencing what we are experiencing, that we could connect as you know someone who's the only one in politics. I could connect with someone who's in banking. I could connect with someone who's in IT. I connect with someone who's in education. So that that network of onlys in their respective industries becomes a force uh-huh. in terms of the fact we're not alone when we connect together. So it's something that I spoke about towards the conclusion of my book in terms of things that I felt like I could have done better making those different connections. But when you talk about leadership, you know, one of the last lines in the acknowledgement section, which I hope people read because I, I do think it's quite beautiful, is that when I speak to the people of Canada, is for them to understand that their value, the value of who they are, the value as a person, their authenticity is never, and it has never been determined by their title. Mm-hmm. And the capacity to lead, to have to be transformative leaders does not require a title. The capacity to be authentic, to advocate, to demand change doesn't require a title. If we waited for people to have a title to demand change, we would still be (laughs) living in some kind of, I, I don't even know what we would be doing, but it took regular people doing extraordinary things to change the world. And that has never changed. It has never been that it takes, you know, extraordinary people doing extra extraordinary things to change the world. That has never been the case. It's just ordinary people. And it goes back to the meaning of democracy. It really is the power of the people. And our democracy has tentacles in every other facet of our lives. So whether we're talking about education or justice or healthcare, we have the capacity to lead in each of those respective areas. Now, the way that you bring the two things together, whether we're talking about tokenism or we're talking about the capacity for ordinary people to lead, is the support that ordinary people must give to those individuals, especially if they're the only one in their situation. So as the only you know, Black female member of parliament, to have the support of my community, to have the community also advocating for increase in Black representatives in the federal public service the repeal of mandatory minimums, you know, policies that impact Black communities, sustainable, predictable, long-term funding for our organizations. We need these ordinary people 
to support the only ones, whether it's in politics or in corporations or otherwise. Wise words, for sure. As we talk about the workplace and representation, there's so many Black people in workplaces that encounter microaggressions in the workplace. And they go in day in, day out, and they have to deal with it. And of course, sometimes despite their best efforts, that type of tendency to want to lead and to rise above and to do the best you can under those circumstances becomes difficult. Can you talk to some of your experiences with that and offer some advice as to how people can cope? Yeah. So, you know, it's interesting that we use this term microaggressions and I was listening to Kika Ojo Thompson, who who runs the Kojo Institute, an expert in anti-Black racism, mm-hmm. talk about microaggressions, as well as in Ibram X. Kendi's book, How to Be Anti-Racist, talk about microaggressions. Mm-hmm. And we, we really need, to, I think we need to stop using that word. Yeah. Because death by a thousand cuts, or just calling us the N-word and totally, you know, dismissing us, it's six eggs, half a dozen. Both of them are destructive. Both of them are racist, right? So calling it micro, it's, it really isn't micro when when we when you think about the physical, spiritual, and mental impact yes. of microaggressions on people. It causes mental illness. It causes yep. uh, various physical ailments that actually manifest themselves into disease in the body. So there's nothing micro about that once the long-term effects ends up killing you. Yeah. Right. So, you know, when I think about my own situation and one of the reasons why I was very candid about talking about some of the, I'll, I'll leave the term microaggressions for now that I was facing was that I wanted people to know that in spite of, or despite the level of success that I achieved or the title that I had as parliamentary secretary to the prime minister of a G7 country, People were still dismissing me. I was still not allowed access to my workplace, Mm -hmm. not allowed access to my office building. People were asking me for my credentials, even though I was the only black female member of parliament out of 338 people in which I should have been easy to remember. There was still a sense of, we don't need to remember her. She doesn't belong. So even at June of 2019, four years I had been working in that space. On the last day, I was still asked, you know, can I get your credentials to come into the building? And I'm looking at this person saying, you must remember me that I am a member of parliament. You've seen me for the last four years. Mm -hmm. And so I don't need to show you those credentials. And so, you know, even going to meetings where I was the head of delegation, people would look through me to the, you know, my white counterpart behind me, the male behind me saying, you know, who is the head of delegation? Who's the parliamentary secretary? And looking for someone behind me, they couldn't even imagine that that could be a black Mm -hmm. female could have that role. So, you know, one of the the songs that I quote in the book, the only song that I quote in the book is Nina Simone, uh, You've Got to Learn. And she talks about that although you feel misery um, and you never look for sympathy, you face humiliation, you're forced to hide your Mm -hmm. tears, you're forced to pocket your pride and still smile. Yeah. Even though love is no longer being served and, you know, you've got to learn to do these things. And we've had to learn to do these things as Black women. And I I just wanted to be very open and candid about those experiences because it didn't matter what title I had. 
if those racist attempts to ensure that I didn't feel like I belonged in the space persisted. And I know many Black people, many Black women can identify with that. And so in the book too, Selena, you talk about your mental health struggles with the anxiety and as well as balancing that with your own competitive nature. And I just wanted to ask you about how that experience, you know, really unfolded for you, because you mentioned that you always had a drive to be the best, to be the best you could be. And so many Black women can identify with that. And then I'm quoting a line from the book that you say that, but I had turned in on myself. Could you expand on that a bit? Because that struck me as just very, very profound statement. First, I have to give a little bit of context that I had worked in uh, neurological research before getting into politics. So I ran a healthcare-based research management program, working on clinical trials for, for neurological conditions, running Canada's you know, first national epidemiology study on neurological conditions. So I had administered many depression scales, many understood that at many points in my life that I would have failed the depression scale and been diagnosed with depression. However, um, I didn't get the help that I needed until very, very late. In fact, it wasn't until I was running in the general election in 2015 that I actually got the first diagnosis. And I would say that, you know, that's the hard part, right, is trying so hard to maintain this lifestyle of being twice as good and working twice as hard and doing twice as much. It's not a sustainable way to live. And I'm not saying to any Black woman that it's not the way in which we have to operate. I know that we have to be twice as good and twice as fast and work twice as hard. However, if we're not taking the time to give ourselves twice a break, (laughs) we are not going, it's not sustainable. It's not a sustainable way to live. So at some point, you got to give yourself a break. And I give several examples of how I learned to do that. I won't give the book away, but even like my encounter with Michelle Obama was one way in which I learned to do that. But, you know, more practically was going to see a doctor finally and, and knowing that it was in my head that it was okay to not be okay. That, that was the first thing. Once you're able to do that, then getting the help you need. And I want to know where I said I turned in on myself in the book because I, I don't remember what context I was speaking to about, about that in the, in the book. It was talking about the struggles with mental health and your own competitive nature, like to be the best. You know, and I saw this line from some other author who said, you know, she was referring to Black women that you can't outwork racism because so many of us, we enter the workplace and we think, I'm just going to work hard. I'm going to work harder than everybody else. I'm going to stay late. I'm going to do everything and they'll see, they'll see, right? How good and that I deserve it. And so many of us go in there just ready and we're already hard workers. And then we get in there and we think we can not necessarily in your situation, but so many women go in and they know of the tendencies of black women to be overlooked. But so many women think, well, okay, I'll just go in and I'll work really hard and I'll work doubly hard and, and and that'll be okay and that'll get me something and it will get and it me does. somewhere and I'll be yeah, and I'll yeah. shine and I'll, it's going to be glorious right and and then we go in and we realize yeah no you really can't outwork racism and it's not necessarily going to unfold in that way <laughs> so I found the passage it actually is one of the, the my favorite parts of the book 
where I, I read this letter or this open letter to CBC that's written by Whitney Davis. And Whitney Davis was an executive at CBC and said that the broadcasting station, television broadcasting station had a white problem. And she goes on to describe all of the racism that she experienced, all of the challenges she experienced, you know, being, hearing the N-word, being mistaken for another woman, doing like another black woman, you know, going and every single thing that she said in the passage, uh, it was published in Variety. I was, I was nodding my head going, yeah, that's me. That's me. I was thinking, you know, I could change the, the title CBS Network for politics and our stories would be exactly identical. And so, you know, I, I was in that reflection of the story is where I was talking to you earlier about, you know, tokenism, how, you know, each one of us who are by ourselves in our respected areas need to connect with each other. So if I had, I didn't need Whitney Davis to, to validate my story. I could have connected with any woman, any black woman who's in a senior role in Canada who is by themselves and they would have the exact same experience. And so I was saying, and I'll just quote the book. It says between my struggles with depression and anxiety and the battle to control my competitive drive to be better than others, to be the best it had turned. I had turned further in on myself. I think that's why Whitney Davis's open letter in variety hit me so strongly. It was one of the first times I'd let someone else's experiences reach the walls I had put up around me. So we we tend to, because we know that the environment that we're entering is going to be hostile, we protect ourselves, we arm ourselves to go into these spaces. We do the twice as good, twice as fast, twice as hard, and we make our exteriors sort of resilient to that. But we need to soften a little bit in order to connect with each other and in order for those experiences to really allow us to feel less insane. And so I end that chapter by saying, but I didn't need Davis's article to validate my experiences. Any woman of color could have done that. Any person who has felt marginalized or alone at the top could have done that. Yeah, no, very profound. And it's so true that we need to connect with each other regardless. And so we're coming to the end of the program and it's Black History Month. And it's it's a month where we recognize, you know, the achievements of our, our people and our community. And it's it's such it's a month where we where we're filled with pride. And and so within that context, and it's such a wonderful month for the book to be launched as well, because your story and your book is really a validation for so many of us, for so many people. And it's really a proud moment, too, because. There are times, right, when you are in the situation you think, is it me? And you wonder if you're, you doubt it. And, you know, you see other Black women, you see other, you know, and, and they look fine. Because as you said, you know, we, we put up the exterior and we're, we're taught to just shed the tears and go in the next day and put our best foot forward. And we wonder, you know, is it is it just me? And so, so many wise words, Selena, with offering up that support to each other so that we can all validate our experiences, support each other. But any last words from you before we end? So the, the one thing that I would say, first of all, it's Black History Month, so I, I must give a shout out to the 
the Black woman, the first Black member of Parliament to put forward the bill to have Black History Month recognized in Canada, and that's the Honourable Dr. Jean Augustine. We're celebrating 25 years of Black History Month in Canada because of her her stewardship, her legacy, her bravery at a time, and, and she's still living. So this is living history right now, right? Um, I texted her maybe two days ago, and she's Mama Jean, so we we text back and forth. But I mean, I would say to women to be authentic. Every experience, every joy, every pain, every mistake, every flaw, every strength, every triumph that we have brought to bear in our lives, every bit of education and experience has created value in us. Once we have learned those lessons, once we live with those lessons, it creates value. And when we put those experiences in organizations, communities, institutions, it adds value to those institutions. So show up as your authentic self. We can't expect organizations or institutions to change and be more equitable if we keep adapting to fit into their pre-existing description of what the status quo should be. We need to change those organizations by being our authentic selves in them, being our authentic in a safe way, but still being authentic in those spaces. And if we want them to change, we, we have to show up. We have to show up authentically. We have to use our voice and we have to stand in all of our power. So thank you so much for having me, Keisha. This was a wonderful interview. I thoroughly enjoyed it and keep using your platform to have these conversations, to empower, to enrich, and to to make the world a better place. Thank you so much, Selena. It was so amazing having you on the show and such a great platform that you've provided that you've allowed millions of black women and men to feel comfortable and to use their voice and you know it's funny because once you get to the end of the book when you talk about the essence of can you hear me now it comes across so beautifully and so plainly as you talk about your childhood and everything just culminates so nicely towards the end of the book and so congrats on the book again Selena and Thank you again for being on the show. Where can people find you in terms of social media and your website? Um, on all social media, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and TikTok, I guess. <laughs> um, I'm at I am Selena CC. So I-A-M-C-E-L-I-N-A-C-C. And if you're looking for the book uh, globally, you could go to my website, which is selenacc.ca forward slash book. So that's C-E-L-I-N-A-C-C dot C-A forward slash B-O-O-K. And it's available through Penguin Random House, or if you just Google it, you could find me. (laughs) Yeah. And it's there and it's everywhere. And I'm sure, you know, we're going to hear great things as a result of that book, which is amazing. So thank you for putting it out there for all of us, Selena. And thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you for joining us this week on Holistic Wealth with Keisha Blair. Make sure to visit our website, KeishaBlair.com, where you can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, or via RSS, so you will never miss a show. While you're at it, if you found value in this show, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes, or if you simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out too. Are you a member of the Institute on Holistic Wealth? If not, what are you waiting for? 
Go to Institute on Holistic Wealth slash memberships to choose your membership plan and join. As a member, you get so many perks. Free worksheets, advice, coaching, and a member's workshop to design an intentionally designed life. You need to figure out your life purpose? Take the Build Your Life Purpose Portfolio Online Self-Paced Course. You're struggling with all your money decisions? Take the free financial identities quiz and then take the course. You recently had a breakup, job loss, or experienced the death of a loved one? Take the holistic healing course. You need an overall plan to achieve holistic wealth? We will help you figure out your holistic wealth blueprint. And of course, if you want to start making money by helping others achieve holistic wealth, become a certified holistic wealth consultant. Regardless of what career you've got, the Institute will show you how to increase your income and walk in your purpose. The sooner you join, the sooner you start to achieve a more holistically wealthy lifestyle. And you're going to want to stay for a very long time. So go to Institute on Holistic Wealth slash memberships to join. If you haven't read the book yet, pick up a copy of the award-winning best-selling Holistic Wealth 32 Life Lessons to Help You Find Purpose, Prosperity, and Happiness.